Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and welcome to the Adam Ruins Everything podcast. It's the podcast version of Adam Ruins Everything, the TV show. I'm your host, Adam Conover, and I'm also the host of Adam Ruins Everything, the TV show on True TV, which you can see. Oh, and by the way, we're back now. New episodes every Tuesday night on True TV, and you can find clips and full episodes at truetv.com slash Everything and the Watch True TV app. Okay, so let me explain the show really quick. If you guys have been listening for a while, you've heard this already, but hey, we've probably got some new listeners who decided to tap on this episode first on their podcast app. So let me just break it down real quick. On the TV show, I talk to experts from all over the world, academia, journalists, uh, cool, smart people like that, incredible, fascinating people. But we talk to them for just like 90 seconds. Here on the podcast, we bring them into the studio or we talk to them remotely from a studio far away for longer, for 45 minutes or an hour or so. We get to really get into what makes their work so cool and break apart those issues in a longer format. So today's guest is Ethan Zuckerman. We talked to him on Adam Ruins the Internet. And in that episode, we talked about how when we use supposedly free services like Facebook and Google, we're not really the users of those services at all. We're really the product that they're selling to advertisers. And we talk about the incredibly negative effect that this has on the Internet in general. And on this podcast, we're going to talk about that at much greater length. Ethan is such a fascinating guy. He's the director of the Center for Civic Media at MIT and an associate professor at the MIT. Media Lab, which I don't know if you guys know the MIT Media Lab. It's basically the coolest goddamn place on the planet. They just think really big ideas about the future and technology and how media will be used. It, I don't know. Just go Google it and you'll – well, do, or don't Google it because they'll be tracking you. Use uh, Bing. Oh, no, that tracks you too. I don't know. You're fucked no matter what you do. But go look it up and you'll see how cool their work is. And guess what? Ethan is joining us today remotely from the MIT Media Lab itself. That's right. We are using the power of the internet to conduct this interview. And look. It's really fascinating. Let's just get right to it. Let's get right into it. Um, Absolutely. Let's do it. So, what can I do for you? So you appeared on our internet episode, and uh, you talked about, uh, to refresh people who haven't seen that episode before, um, because we, we have some listeners who listen to the podcast before they've seen the episode, or maybe they don't ever see the episode, and they're just trying to get the gist from the podcast without paying for a cable subscription. Uh, you talk about how... Uh, as users, our desire to use free services resulted in the fact, you know, decades later that we're now under surveillance all the time by all of these uh, Internet companies. Right. Right. So basically what I ended up talking about was this sort of Faustian bargain we made 
where everything we do online is free, except, of course, what that means is that we are actually the product being marketed. And so we talked about the ways in which the Internet didn't really have to work this way. It's just very early on. This was essentially the first business model that we figured out. And it's such an attractive business model because it brings in tons of customers. It allows really rapid growth that we didn't think about some of the downsides. The first downside is that advertisers are always competing for your attention. And so for creators, it's not a very good model because you're essentially fighting with your revenue stream. You want people to pay attention to the creation that you made, but you're also you know, essentially fighting for your viewers' attention at the same time. The second, mm-hmm. right? Like how on a vid- on a video, there'll be. I worked for College Humor, and it was always a matter of where is the is it going to be a video pre roll or a post roll because that advertiser is fighting with the content itself to actually be seen by the viewer. Well, and the same thing's happening on podcasts now, right? So uh, everyone yes. wanted pre roll, and then everyone now wants mid roll. You know, I'm fond of the shows that are able to do post roll. And, and I like the fact that people, you know, actually stick around and sometimes listen for the ads. I try to be a good citizen and, and do that myself. Um, right. But, of course, podcasts in many cases have alternative revenue models. A lot of the ones are supported by subscription. They're supported by fans. They're supported by merch. Just like we are here at Maximum Fun. We're primarily subscriber and fan supported. And and you have a wonderful, like you. a wonderful network with lots of really good content on it that people are then reaching out and supporting. And, and folks like Maximum Fun and Radiotopia are putting forward different networks to figure out how we do this. But in the right, internet space... Right, but that's space, the we, exception. Well, it's it's not necessarily the exception in the podcast space. In some ways, it's the new normal. But in many ways, the podcast space came from the public radio world. And in the public radio mm-hmm. world, there were two things they couldn't do. They couldn't charge subscription and they couldn't do formal advertising. So they ended up with this love economy where you basically say, if you love us, please support us. And then not only will you get us, but other people will get the content that you love. And podcasting right. has captured a lot of that model. But getting back to the, the internet advertising piece of it, one implication was that we were always going to be fighting for attention. The second is just that internet advertising just doesn't work very well. Um, very few mm-hmm. people voluntarily click on those ads. And so there's now this enormous multi-billion dollar industry of people essentially saying, let's take this junky, broken, messed up thing and make it some tiny percent better. So if I can give you 5% better responsiveness on your ads, that might mean a whole lot of money for you. And the incentive to Mm. then collect enormous amounts of demographic, psychographic, and behavioral data on you suddenly gets very, very high. So this is what's functionally happened. We're trying to capture your attention because you don't like having your attention being captured. We need to put you under surveillance so that we can try to make it slightly more likely that you're going to click an ad. In the process, we end up creating this wealth of data that's functionally toxic waste. Um, You don't want it released because it has all sorts of information about you. The model still doesn't work. And we all walk around acting like this is the only possible way to do things. And and maybe it's time for a change. 
Wow. I never thought of the, that idea of the data as being toxic waste, like all the data that Google or let's say not. Let's say Google does it pretty well. Let's talk about, you know, Google too, the sort of crappier version of Google that's also tracking you and has worse security policies. Right? Well, whatever that, that, that company is. That's called Yahoo, oh. right? That's the one that actually <laughs> gave up all of our data in 2014. Um, so look, right. first of all, right. let, me, let me put in the footnotes, right? I'm an academic, so I have to do this. Uh, data is toxic waste is an idea that uh, Mache Shiklowski has put forward uh, uh i've read his i read his piece um is it called the internet with a human face was that the name of his talk yeah this was a talk that he gave at a conference called beyond Telerand, and it's probably the single best thing that's been written about internet advertising um, yes i it really influenced that talk if you guys haven't seen it um his name is very hard to spell but if you google uh because i i forget is it polish i'm not sure um he's polish american it, yeah yeah. But if you Google the Internet with a human face, you can watch the talk or there's a transcript of it. And it really perfectly dramatizes how uh, we've sort of given up the best parts of the Internet and how the worst parts of the Internet have come to the fore and how the I don't know, the tracking and the control that's being exerted by these corporations is really is really degrading everything that we love about it. It was incredibly influential in, in uh, my thinking about this episode. Well, so the other w way to find him is if you can't spell Mache Shaglowski and, you know, what's wrong with you people. Um, his Twitter handle is Bacon Meteor, and he's pretty easy to find that way. <laughs> um, but so what, what Mache has done on some of the later talks on this is basically said, look, all these social networks that are collecting all of this information, they go out of business. You know, anyone remember Six Degrees? I was a member of Six Degrees. Uh, I remember that site. Wh yeah. Where's that data now? Um, they no longer exist. There is no website. They probably got sold to someone at some point. Um, that data is out there somewhere. I have no idea where. Um, what might be known about you in that data? Mache points out that, you know, this sort of data from government surveillance during the Cold War in Poland has become this massive political issue in that country. No one mm. wants to touch these reams of data because some of these reams of data are going to realize that, that people were collaborators with the government. It's going to be very, very dangerous. It's going to be very damaging. You know, what if your data somewhere had you leading something of a double life? Maybe you were having a relationship with someone. Maybe you were exploring other interests. Right. Um, that data's out there somewhere. And so I've been going and giving talks lately about data ethics and urging people to think about data minimalism. What is the least amount of data that you need to have from a user to reasonably get something done? And how do you hold on to it as briefly as possible? And when you get rid of it, you know, how do you make sure um, that it doesn't you know, come back to bite them? Uh, if you try to leave LinkedIn or you try to leave Facebook, you'll discover that they won't actually eliminate your account without many, many steps. They simply let it lie dormant. They right. have decided that that information is so critical to their business model that they really don't want to let you loose. And so do you think that... There's any, you know, is there an optimistic case for the idea of data ethics? Because as you put it forward, 
you know, and the way you describe this, it sounds like, all right, yeah, this is something that we should be really concerned about. We're generating this this horrible, powerful data that, you know, could be used. And yeah, if you think about it on a many decade timeline, these companies could go out of business. So someone could just the repository could fall into the wrong hands. So therefore, you're sort of creating this sort of weaponized data and that it should be uh, I, after, after your brief explanation, I'm convinced it should be a burden on those creating the data to deal with it ethically. But this as an issue is so new and so abstract and subtle, you know, um, for the average person to sort of wrap their head around. Do you think there's an optimistic case for that being a part of our digital culture in the future? No, I'm not an optimist about anything regarding the Internet. I mean, I, I, I've been on the Internet since 1989. All of my optimism got washed away somewhere in the early 1990s. Right. Um, no, I look, I think realistically, there's a, an interesting set of new revenue models that might prove to take some of the Internet away from free ad supported. I think probably the single most important one of these would be trying to get Facebook, Google at all to offer premium versions of their products where they would agree not to collect behavioral information on you in exchange for paying an annual hosting fee. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing about this is that if you look at the amount of money that a company like Facebook can make from you and actually does make from you, it's quite modest. It's really in the neighborhood of, you know, $10, $20 per user per year yep. from advertising. It's the sort of thing where you could come back with a subscription at $25 and be making significantly more money. But Facebook will never do it at that price point because built into their stock price is this implicit promise that they will somehow figure out in the future how to use that amazing wealth of data on you to target ads that will be worth ever so much more. Right. Um, perhaps it's possible that what the market really is pricing in at some point is that they'll start the Facebook blackmail program where they'll start <laughs> trying to charge you hundreds of dollars for not revealing to the people in your network what they really know about you. That's another possibility. But if we could get to the point, and this probably would require a consumer movement, where we essentially say, you know, hey, Google, I really like Gmail, and I use it every day, and I'm already paying you a little bit for extra storage, I'm willing to move up to an annual subscription in exchange for which you're going to stop watching my content. Uh, oh, and by the way, I'll throw in an extra 20 bucks a year, and you're going to stop watching me on the search engine as well. And allowing people to sort of have informed consent where they can sort of opt out of the surveillance economy and into a subscription economy, that would be one great step. I think another great step is going to be independent content creators like you mm. finding alternative models around this. And, you know, I don't know where maximum fun has been around these issues. I'm very close to a lot of the Radiotopia producers, and, you know, they're very concerned about trying to ensure that to the extent that they're ad-supported versus audience-supported, that they're not doing it in a way that's surveillant, not doing it in a way that's particularly exploitative. Um, they are not trying to capture the individual session data so much as they're trying to do general market survey around it. So I don't right. have nearly as much of a problem with 
untargeted advertising as I do with psychographically and behaviorally targeted advertising. I also don't have a problem with intention targeted advertising. When you go onto a search engine and say, I'm looking for a roofer in North Adams, Massachusetts, I think it's great if a roofer in North Adams wants to advertise to me. That seems terrific. What worries me is when it looks at me and says, Ethan, you're a 43-year-old male from Berkshire (laughs) County and winter is coming. We suspect that you might be interested in roofing products that's when things get slightly complicated right or here here uh, we know how much money you earn so here's the more expensive roofer in town or whatever right or we know from your behavior on amazon that you're an impulse buyer you're price insensitive and therefore we're going to sell you on a copper roof because that's what you really need in your house <laughs> so I, i'd like to like because uh the way we initially found you was we uh we read a, a piece of yours i think in the atlantic uh, a while ago where you talked about your experience in the very early days of the ad supported web um and i'd love if you could sort of Walk us through, because what what I find so fascinating about this is the idea that the internet could have been different, right? And it was just this succession of like small steps um, that sure. got us to where we are today. So you, you started at least many years ago, you were at Tripod, right? I remember Tripod. I used to, actually, my, my very first high school crush had a Tripod website, and I recently went back, and it's still there. Um, uh, oh, that's fantastic. I'm so <laughs> glad to hear that. Um, so I started at Tripod even before we were hosting other people's content. Tripod started out as a lifestyle site. I mean, basically an online magazine for recent college graduates. And the whole idea was that we were going to have large scale sponsorship from advertisers who wanted to reach recent college grads. So our first big sponsor was Calvert Mutual Funds. The whole Mm. idea was we would give you all sorts of information. We would give you tools for life and exchange. Calvert would, you know, sponsor all the content And if you were smart, you would start a mutual fund in your 20s and everyone would win. Right. So we started doing this and a couple of things happened. But the first thing that happened was that the ad industry started to standardize. And so this notion of sort of package sponsorship got to be a lot less interesting. People actually wanted sort of single ad sizes. And so we saw the emergence of the ad banner. Right. The second thing that happened and what, was what, that... And what year was this? Can you put that in context? It's probably early 1996. And the reason that I know that is, you know, the punchline of the story comes in mid-1996. And I was still fooling around with ads that were square. They were like 180 by 180 or 240 by 240. And and that standard horizontal banner was still one of the sort of five or six designs that everyone was playing with. But I would say by 97, that became the industry standard. In 96, it was on its way to becoming there. Right. So the big thing that we were involved with was the rise of user-generated content. So we'd started as an edited content site. We had writers. We had all these hip kids who otherwise would have been in New York. Um, and instead, they were in Williamstown, Massachusetts. And they were writing lifestyle <laughs> pieces. And we would put them up on the website. And 200 people would read them. And it was a really bad prospect economically. <laughs> the only reason we survived as a company is that one of my engineers, Jeff Vanderkloot, in the middle of the night, modified a piece of code that we'd written. We'd written a resume builder to allow you to fill out fields and produce a pretty well-produced resume in HTML and in PDF format. And Jeff realized that everything we'd done for the resume builder 
could be turned into a really simple generic web page builder. Mm. And all you had to do is eliminate all those fields about what job you'd had and what, where you'd gone to college and just put in one big text area that said, paste your HTML here. <laughs> and so we put it up one night and we totally ignored it. And then a couple months later, I got a bandwidth bill that was 10 times higher than anything I'd ever gotten before. And it turned out that while no one was reading our carefully constructed content, written, I might add, by people who've gone on to wonderful careers in the magazine business, they were spending huge amounts of time looking at each other's homepages, which right. were basically filled with blink tags and animated GIFs. Right. So we then had to figure out how to advertise on these pages. And the problem with these pages is that our elegant content we knew was going to be nice for the likes of, of Calvert Mutual Funds and for Ford Motor Company. Not so with user pages. And so what would happen is our advertisers would periodically figure out that they were appearing on rather unsavory pages. Uh, they're on somebody's furry porn page or what have you. Right. So, and that's, so uh, MetLife doesn't want to be advertising next to uh, the rabbit with boobs. I get it. Uh, furries brought to you by Ford. Yes. So, uh, so Ford calls us up and essentially says, uh, get us off the furry page. And my boss, Bo Peabody came to me and said, what can we do now? The real answer was we needed to figure out how to handle our content. We needed to figure out how to edit what was going up on the website. We needed to figure out how to screen and, and make sure that people were living up to our terms of service. That's not what we did. In <laughs> that would have been too hard and sensible. Um, so we knew that Ford was worried about the furries because they'd called my boss. And my boss you know, came to me and said, you got to get the ads off the furry pages. And the right way to solve this would have been to figure out how to do a better job of enforcing our terms of service, how to figure out how to um, control what was happening on this content. But even that early on, we realized that was totally unfeasible. We ended up with 15 million web pages hosted on our server. There was no way <laughs> to review them meaningfully. Right. So what I did was a really sloppy, bad solution. I used a JavaScript function that had just been invented, which was Windows open. I opened a new window. I put some navigational information in it. I put the tripod brand in it and I put an ad in it. And wait, so and that's, you invented the pop-up ad is what you're saying. Adam, I invented the pop-up ad. <laughs> I'm so, so sorry. Now, did now when they hired you at, at the MIT Media Lab, did they know that or did you keep that a secret? Because that seems like I a black mark a secret, on your resume. I, I kept that a secret, you know, basically until I had the moral equivalent of tenure. You know, I waited <laughs> until they gave me a five-year contract. There, there, was, there was no way that I was going to reveal that. No, the truth is I, I've been open about this. I've, I've talked about this for a long time. Um, it's my friends at The Atlantic took this sort of long and I'd like to think thoughtful essay about the future of internet advertising and they realized that the only part of it that anyone was going to care at all about it was the <laughs> confession of the pop-up ad. So they ran a 180-word story alongside my 3,500-word essay um, <laughs> explaining that I'd invented the pop-up ad and then almost to sort of prove my point, pretty much every network out there you know, did some sort of story about, you know, inventor of the pop-up ad says he's sorry. Uh, I have a talk that I give these days. I'm going to give it to high school students in Dalton, Massachusetts tomorrow that shows me being made fun of by Jimmy Fallon. I, I mean, so th 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 this hit uh, a 
very high level of infamy very very quickly well you gotta um, you gotta you know you, you gotta put the uh you know the honey in the in the ointment or, or uh, i'm mixing metaphors but you know um that 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 did i think probably bring a lot of people to the article it's certainly very hooky a very hooky premise <laughs> and, and and the good news is that a lot of people read the real point of the article right. which was as we did it didn't have to be that way we right. made it that way because it so let, let me back up a second so i teach now at mit and I teach at the Media Lab, which is this weird, crazy place where people are sort of always trying to invent possible futures. And, you know, the basic motto here is move fast and break things. And, and um, if you're not going to change the world for a billion people, why would you do it? Hmm. And what I try to teach here is that every technology is political. And I don't mm. mean left, right, Democrat, Republican. What I mean is that every single technology has some sort of assumptions baked into it. And those assumptions govern what we can and can't do. And they shape how the future happens. Mm. When you build an advertising-supported internet, you need it to be really big. You need everything to be really big mm. because advertising doesn't work very well. It captures some tiny fraction of a percent of attention. And so if you're going to put up content out there, you need it to go to thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. And what that means is that you end up with certain types of content. It's actually fairly hard to support through that model stuff that's really niche stuff that's really obscure. That has to be supported through some different ways. You also have this assumption that you're going to be fighting for attention with your revenue stream. That ends up being really problematic, particularly if you're trying to do artistic sorts of work you know in the middle of our conversation we're friends we're having fun you might want to throw in a mid-roll ad but if you're nate DeMeo, you're making the memory palace you're doing these sort of beautiful you know jewel-like stories i mean he's off at the met right now you yes. know, building these stories um you don't want to be fighting anybody for attention mm. so the politics of these decisions they have implications and so what i try to do is i try to teach my students that even if they don't think they have politics going into the tech that they're building, they do. And they have to think about what they're bringing to the table on all of this. Yeah, because the, I, the, the format of the, of the site uh, and, and, you know, the constraints of the technology determine the, the output. That, that's, what that, that's what this whole uh, story has taught me is that, 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 you know, rather small decision or natural decision that made so much sense. I remember making sense to me. Oh, yeah, free, free content. Everything's ad supported. Makes a lot of sense in 1999. And then, you know, 16, 17 years later, it, it, you know, it seems like the, the results on the end product are almost cataclysmic. And, and we even had really good reasons for sort of making some of these decisions. So one of the things that I discovered at Tripod was that the only people more passionate than American teenagers with collections of animated GIFs <laughs> were people in Malaysia who were involved with opposition politics. Because they'd been banned from the press, they'd been banned from broadcast media, and pretty much the only media they had access to was putting up tripod pages. Right. And so we found in 1996 that we were hosting the Reformasi movement. We were hosting, you know, Anwar Ibrahim's, um, you know, alternative to uh, the, the dominant political party at that point. And so one of the things we actually had to think about was we knew we couldn't sell ads to Malaysia. 
did we cut off non-English speaking homepages? Did we cut off homepages that weren't going to make us money? And we decided that we wouldn't and we couldn't because it, it was just, you know, it, it was a deeply inhumane yeah, It was wrong. It would have been wrong to do. Had, had we made smart business decisions, we, we would have axed them. But the other thing was we also sort of realized that if we moved to a pure subscription model, we were going to lose all those people using the web for free speech in areas where they weren't able to pay for it. Right. And so we, we actually had some, some good moral arguments for why advertising was the way to go. So what I would say on all of this is, you know, the real question is we just have to sit down and say, what are those assumptions? Where might they lead us? It might have been really hard in 96 to imagine some of the nonsense that happens today. My favorite bit of craziness in this is is the patent for the supersonic sound that plays on an ad on your laptop in the hopes that your phone will have an adware app on it that hears the supersonic sound and can then uniquely link the identifier of your laptop and your phone so it can start giving you cross-platform advertising between the two because of course it's a better user experience for you (laughs) this is an actual idea somebody had oh this is a company Oh, wow. I mean, there's patents on this. I mean, this is out there. No, this stuff is out there. That one I wrote about for uh, The Guardian, actually, talking about um, how I think we we hit the apotheosis of creepy adware. So it was pretty hard to anticipate that, but it wouldn't have been all that hard to anticipate the popularity contest because we already could see that coming in 96. Now, whether we knew that the popularity contest was going to lead to, you know, the collapse of journalism as we know it and basically (laughs) people, you know, chasing clickbait, that might have been harder to see. But, you know, the point is I was in the room where it happened. We didn't have these conversations. We weren't thinking about technology in those terms. And we have to. That's the ethical and responsible thing to do. Right. We're here talking to Ethan Zuckerman. We'll be back in just a moment, so stick around. I'm Brian. And I'm Aaron. And we host Throwing Shade, a political comedy podcast that's somehow horribly offensive and socially conscious. If you want to know what it sounds like if the news drank straight vodka, check us out on Thursdays on Max Fun. And we're the first Max Fun podcast to be turned into a TV show, so check that out January 17th on TV Land. Throwing Shade. Politics, pop culture, wigs for days. Welcome back to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I am here talking to the director of the Center for Civic Media at MIT, Ethan Zuckerman, who appeared on the Internet episode of Adam Ruins Everything. Well, so let me ask you this, because uh, to me, it often feels as though and the impetus for a lot of our, you know, us doing our Internet episode is that I've been a heavy Internet user my whole life. Like literally my I remember the day that my cable company called my parents or call. Actually, they called. I remember taking the call myself and they said, we're rolling out a trial version of, you know, cable Internet. Do you want to be a trial household? And I said yes. And then for some, for some reason, that cable, my parents had the cable go directly into my bedroom rather than to like a family <laughs> room. And so from then on, that was about 10th grade. I spent 
every night from you know 6 p.m. on on the computer that was my entire life right um and so that it, you know was very important to me and i was and it turned out i was only a couple years ahead of everybody else and now everybody is spending all their time online right um but my experience of it now is that the internet is a less interesting place than it used to be because of this crazy slippery slope that happened you know as you said like everything you know free everything being free and ad supported made a lot of sense but then all these companies had to compete to, uh, you know, as you say, they uh, the only way they could marginally improve their figures was to track everybody. Um, and, you know, they all realized that uh, not only was the tracking information, uh, the tracking information important, but the the user generated content, as you say, was uh, a huge part of it, like, you know, was was also an asset. And so they started centralizing. And now we're in a situation where, you know, whereas the Internet that I loved was this wonderful Wild West place where people sort of found, you know, new content randomly and and you know you could sort of like uh, you know you really felt like you were surfing the web going from blog to you know web ring mm-hmm. to you know oh i found this weird musician who's putting stuff up here to a situation where you know uh facebook makes up a a massive i forget what fraction but you know a, a single digit denominator fraction sure. of, of all time spent online uh almost all searches go through google all of these services are tracking us and in fact the the quest for eyeballs is so intense that you know, I got my start doing uh, sketch comedy on the internet pre YouTube. We just uploaded our videos, right. you know, QuickTime movies, and people found them because there was so little video content, and they just sort of stumbled across our website. Now, the degree to which uh, an independent creator has to play by the rules of Google and Facebook, right? They have to become experts in using right. those sites, social media you know, uh, sweets in order to eat, to make a, a dent at all and, and, uh, you know, get any kind of audience, um, makes it seem like I read, you know, I, I read a, um, an essay on, oh, now I'm forgetting who, whose it was. Um, but, uh, basically the, uh, premise was that the internet is becoming more and more like TV where, where the channels, mm-hmm. uh, the major distribution channels are actually, uh, much more powerful than they had been in the past. Um, and I don't know, that's my dark vision of, yeah. of, of, of where, no, of where I, we're at. So, so first of all, I mean, I, I think your dark vision is, is not far from where we're at. I, I have a visitor in my lab. She's um, uh, an amazing scholar, Amber Case, um, who wrote a book on, on calm technologies, um, technologies that, that try not to interrupt us, but actually sort of interact gently with us. Mm. Uh, but her new work is on uh, the weird old web, and she's trying to figure out how to bring the weird back. And one of the things about the weird old web is that sites like Tripod basically just said, here's a web page, do something with it. Right. And people did things like the hamster dance, uh, right. which were really weird. Um, and you'd better link to the hamster dance if we, if we <laughs> use this. Uh, I'm sure someone has recreated it somewhere. Um, well, actually, they, went, they, they have since gone commercial, the hamster dance, unfortunately. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> you go look well, it up I, now. I, it's not what it used to be. I, I, I learned that Keyboard Cat now has an agent. Um, <laughs> key, keyboard Cat is dead and, and still has an agent. But, but, you know, back in the weird old web, it required a great deal of creativity. And so once everyone figured out that the way to make money in this space was user-generated content, because then you didn't have to pay your content creators, then you had to prompt people for what content to make. 
So you go on Facebook now, and Facebook is hilarious. Facebook says, hey, you're not producing enough content. How about this memory from eight years ago? Do you remember this? Why don't you post that again? Hey, we've taken all the photos with you and your friend Dave, and we put them together in an album called Memories. Why don't we put that out there? If your friends aren't creating enough content, Facebook then prompts you to check in with them and make sure they're doing okay. They haven't produced any content for us lately. Will they try to do something? Facebook prompted me from my friend Hossein Durakshan and said, hey, Hossein hasn't made any content lately. Why don't you check in on him? Hossein Durakshan was in Evan prison in Iran. It was very difficult for him to access <laughs> Facebook at that particular moment. Oh, God. But they're asking us to create in these very specific ways. They're giving us these very specific templates. And, you know, it feels good to a certain extent because seeing pictures of our friends and getting right. a little news of their lives, that feels good. We get the little dopamine boost. But it's just not that interesting. But the And Twitter manages to be pretty interesting in 140 characters. But it's 140 characters. And so there's a couple of things that work there. We really have lost a lot of that creative space as we've centralized on a small number of platforms. Right. And and the sad thing about Facebook is that, you know, I, I uh, about a year ago started you know, dramatically downgrading my, my Facebook usage because I noticed that the keyboard, you know, just typing command L F A C enter to get to Facebook was such muscle memory. I was doing it without realizing it. And so I blocked it on Chrome and, you know, except for one day a week and I uh, deleted it from my phone. And now I, I genuinely only check it, uh, you know, at the most once a day and at the least once a week. Right. Um, but I had considered leaving altogether and I realized I couldn't because that's where my friends and family are, you know. And um, so, you know, I just did, uh, I just went on tour and had some nice, you know, uh, things broadcast on TV. And so that was how people told me, oh, my God, we saw it. Good job, you know. Um, and, and that's such an important outlet. And so the fact yeah. that Facebook dominates it so heavily, right. And it, it, by the way, everyone knows the jig is up. After Google+, Plus. everyone knows, okay, no one is recreating the social network. It's on Facebook sure, or it's sure. nowhere. And so and they use that information to track us and then they use it to influence our behavior as well. It almost feels as though like Facebook discovered oil before anybody else and then just monopolized all of it. Like they found this resource of the social graph and of those social right, connections right. in that meeting place, totally dominated it. And now um, there's sort of no way to dislodge them and they're using it for their benefit, not ours. And it's it's so striking that I'm, a, I'm about as anti-Facebook as you could get. And I, I literally, it's socially impossible for me right, to quit. You literally can't, can't stop using it. Yeah. I don't know how to fix Facebook I do have a theory on how you fix Twitter. And I'll give you this, and then I, I'm going to go gentle into that good night. Um, <laughs> I, Twitter, in some ways, is super easy because all it really lets you publish is 140 characters within certain constraints. So there's sort of no reason why you couldn't publish Twitter-like content on your own website. Right. So you've got a website somewhere. You create a directory called Twitter. You put your updates in it. And then you syndicate them out via something like an RSS feed. The only problem is that no one reads this at this point. <laughs> right. Well, I fantasized about doing this myself, actually, about going back and starting my own blog on my own site with an RSS feed the old fashioned way and say, you got to come to me. And I haven't done it because right. I know that no one would read it. So part of what we're doing here over at the Media Lab is we're trying to build a web-based client that is drawing from this new decentralized Twitter as well as drawing from proper Twitter. 
And so what happens is it says, hey, I want to follow Adam. Let me first look on this directory that's out there on the blockchain. Let's see if he's running decentralized Twitter. If so, let's subscribe to that and start bringing in those feeds. If not, let's go to Twitter. Let's ask their directory, see if they know who he is, and then start subscribing to it on Twitter. And let's just syndicate it and put it together. So the goal is not to replace Twitter. It's to start growing a distributed, independently controlled blockchain directory to one around it. And wow. if we manage to pull it off, we might find ourselves looking at something like essentially trying to complement and build Facebook in the long term. Because you're absolutely right. There's no way to get people off of it. The only thing we might be able to do is help people roll their own and do that better. And then start moving back to it for those political reasons of wanting to have control over your words, control over your server, things like that. That's a wonderful dream. You just uh, have to wor- wonder if that's are are the people who do that going to be the public radio listeners and the credit union users of the future who, you know, that 5% who say, "Well, I give a shit, so I'm using it this way and everyone else is going to be stuck in Facebook hell." Most likely. You know, if we got 5%, it would be a damn sight better than getting 0%. So, <laughs> you know, at at some point, you know, we we've got to look at these alternatives and sort of say, you know, can I find another way to do this that I can philosophically live with? Because not only is there politics to the tech that you create, there's also politics towards the tech that you use. So right. something that I'm starting to think about. Well, thank you so much for coming, Ethan. It's it's been it's incredible to talk to you about this stuff. I really appreciate it. It's a great pleasure. It was so much fun doing the show with you. I can't wait to see it. Uh, and honestly, even more fun talking with you. So I'm just so glad that we had the opportunity and I look forward to the podcast, too. Uh, so thank you so much, Ethan. All right. Take care of yourself, Adam. Thank you once again to Ethan for coming on the show. I hope you guys enjoyed that interview as much as I did. And that is it today for Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. We will be back in two weeks, so please tune in. Our producer is Shara Morris. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. There's so many. There's Overcast. There's Pocket Casts. There's Downcast. I think that, no, that would be a sad name for a podcast app. There isn't one named that, but there's one similar to that. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. Again, Adam Ruins Everything, the TV show, is back with new episodes every Tuesday on True TV. And you can find clips and full episodes at truetv.com slash Adam Ruins Everything and the Watch True TV app. But until then, we will see you in two weeks with more podcasts. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.